What specifically would you do that you aren't currently able to because your health condition is holding you back? Welcome to Balance Health Now podcast. I'm your certified functional nutrition health coach and your host, Sydney Torres. My passion is helping women balance their hormones naturally and improve gut function. Being a health detective, finding the underlining root causes. My other passion is speaking to other health and wellness warriors who share the same vision, wellness for all. We chat all things A to Z on holistic health and wellness, providing holistic and science-based solutions to help you reclaim your health so you can live, feel, and transform into the best version of you. If you don't have your health, then what do you have? I release new episodes every Wednesday. Hope to see you inside. This podcast is meant for educational purposes only. The content should not be used to diagnose, treat, cure any medical or psychological disorder. Hello, Maddie. Thank you so much for being here. We get to spend the next 30 minutes talking all about different ways to develop healthy habits that last. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Sydney. How are you? I am doing fantastic. I just want to let everybody know that you woke up early today. You are located in Australia. So right now it is 7 a.m. your time. So I just want to say thank you so much for um, getting out of bed early. (laughs) That's totally okay. I'm more than happy to come here and hang out with you. (laughs) Oh, right on. So um, before we get um, started in talking about developing healthy habits. I just want to share a little bit about you, um, who you are and what you do. You're a scientist, you're a nutritionist, you have, um, you're a podcast. Uh, your show is called how not to get sick and diet. I love that name. And (laughs) you, you specialize in weight loss, self-confidence for busy professionals and moms. So With that being said, I would love to hear a little bit more about you and how you got to where you are today. Sure thing. So um, for me, I basically, I grew up in the countryside. I used to go to the hospital with my mom as daycare. um, And the reason that that's an important part of the story is because there wasn't like a daycare facility at the hospital. I literally ran around the ward all day. Um, And so I grew up in a small town. And so what that meant was that I developed this love for being in the hospital because little Maddie, who was like four years old or three years old, was just constantly being like loved by all of these sick and dying people that I had no idea. Obviously, I was a little kid. They were just happy that I was like, running around and I was super interested in their stories. And I learned all of these random skills before I even went to school because they taught me how to knit and crochet and build like cane baskets and all of these things. And so I developed this really sort of, um, yeah, passionate belief in like medicine being amazing, even though it had nothing to do with medicine at all. It was just that I just got lots of approval and love from hanging out at the hospital. Um, And so from there, I sort of grew up, I became a bit of an athlete as a teenager. So I learned a little bit about nutrition and and wellness there um, and then moved to university in the city for my um, study and research, that type of thing, became a scientist. 
um, worked in a few different industries and then ended up working in a cancer hospital. And so in my early 20s, I was sort of new in the cancer world and um, I'd been there for a few months and I thought, oh, I should probably really start learning about this cancer thing. You know, it seems to be a thing. <laughs> it's, it's around a lot. Um, and so I, start, I literally went to the World Health Organization website and just typed in cancer. And I'm like, what's the World Health Organization saying about cancer? Um, sentence one of the, on the cancer page, and this is almost 10 years ago now, said 90 to 95% of cancers are due to diet, lifestyle, and tobacco, and 5 to 7% are genetic bad luck, basically. Um, and I was literally, I literally asked my professor, I said, why aren't we doing diet and lifestyle? And he laughed at me and said, uh, unfortunately, if it was that easy, we would have figured it out a long time ago. And so that began uh, me going down a deep rabbit hole of research and information about the world of cancer, the world of medicine, why nobody in the hospital, um, which is actually just 10 minutes from my house, um, why nobody works on a cure at all. Not a single laboratory in the hospital works on cure. And so unfortunately, this un uncovers the fact that as many people do or don't know, it's that, yeah, Western medicine is a business. Um, all, health, all health industries are a business. And I know a lot of people like to think that they're intended <laughs> for good. And sure, they help people sometimes. That's great. But the primary aim of the pharmaceutical and medical industry is to make money. Um, and they're almost a third of most countries' economies. So they make a lot of money. Um, and so unfortunately, this led me to discover that yeah, people don't really come in a chronic disease setting, whether it be diabetes, Alzheimer's, um, Parkinson's, cancer. Most people do not come to a hospital and get better. Um, and the problems exist for most people at home. So I was like, oh, if, if nutrition's the thing and, and, and lifestyle's the thing, I'm going to get educated in that and do that. And then so I went and became a nutritionist and I started holding lectures and I spoke at retreats and wellness events and seminars in multiple countries. And through that, I learned that everybody already knew what to eat. Everybody already knew. They knew that meat, vegetables, nuts, seeds, fruits was all a good idea and that chocolate for breakfast was probably not a good idea. So I was like, if everybody knows what's going on and that led me to really what I do now, which is um, the psychology, which is like working with people to understand why they can't stick to the diet, why they emotionally eat, why they're out of control of their food choices. Because in my experience, most people know what to do in order to avoid a lot of these chronic diseases or at the very least delay them much further than most people do. And it's the, why can't I change my behavior to do what's good for me? That's the thing that I really work with people uh, on now. Wow. I, I think that's so great. Um, so I just have a very curious question for you. Mm -hmm. I want to hear your I want to hear your definition of what it means to be healthy. Mm. That's, that's, a, that's an interesting question because that could go so many ways. Yeah, um, yeah. Because I think happiness, because I think we mix up a lot of um, healthy and happy and especially with, an, you know, this politically correct movement um, of like health at any size. I disagree with that. I think happy at every size, worthy at every size, absolutely. Um, I think both of those are really relevant. But health at every size, it's not—it's just not possible, unfortunately. Um, because when you're—you've you're, got a certain amount of adipose tissue on your body, your body fat, you are increasing your inflammation. You're increasing the likelihood of infection. You're increasing the likelihood that you'll get sick, um, that you'll get a disease. Um, and the number one precursor to all chronic disease in the Western world is being overweight. 
Um, and so, and I, I did my own little research study at the hospital um, one day, literally on my phone when I, I'd done all this research and I was like, okay, I've got to prove to myself that people's diet, dietary choices um, are leading to disease. And I walked around three hospitals that I went in every day with my phone. I went into every single ward that I had access to. And I just counted all of the people that were visibly overweight. And it was 86%. And the, the records show that it's about 88% of cancer patients are overweight. Um, and so it sort of, for me, I think healthy is a combination of eating good food, being happy in the body that you're in, having healthy relationships and connections in your life because, you know, your mind and your, your general soul needs to be also looked after as well. We're not just a physical being, which is why some people do healthy diets and they're like, I'm so bored and miserable with eating kale all of the time. <laughs> you know, there's like our soul that needs to be nurtured as well. But yeah, I think it looks different for everyone. For some people, it would look like the gym seven times a week. For some people, it'd look like going for a walk three times a week, you know? Um, but I think, yeah, putting good food into your body really makes everybody feel great. In the beginning, it's like everything. It's like, oh, it doesn't feel good in the beginning because I like what I used to do. But I'm yet to meet somebody that cleaned out their arteries, cleaned out their digestive system with healthy food that said, oh, I feel worse. You know, <laughs> it just doesn't happen. Unfortunately, that's the fuel we're meant to put into our body. So I think, yeah, food, a good stress management system probably should be in there, whether it be meditation, breath work. Um, so it needs to be a holistic approach, but it, the percentage of the pieces of the puzzle are going to look different for everybody. But I think it involves a bit of everything. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I I totally agree with you, Maddie. I feel that um, because I think a lot of times people just have like that one definition of health, like, oh, I have to just eat good or, oh, I have to be at a certain weight. But mm -hmm. I really think one of the, the missing links to this is health is like you said, it's all those different puzzle pieces. It's, um, it's stress management. It's, are you happy in your career? Are you happy in your relationships? Yeah. Um, are you getting to bed at a decent hour, at least by like 10 o'clock? So taking like all those different, you know, puzzle pieces and putting them together, those pieces make the whole. So yeah, I, totally I, I like, I like how you said that. And, um, health is just not one thing. So, yeah, well, and I like social media and I mean, people that are a little bit older remember magazines. I remember magazines when I was a kid, like, you know, health would have you think the health industry would have you think that healthy is just like abs, basically. Exactly. Like having abs is healthy. And sure. You could argue that that's a good sign of metabolic health, but I've worked with a lot of people that have got abs that have emotional eating issues and have problems, you know, obsessed about calories and, you know, they're not enjoying themselves. <laughs> yeah. And just to stock on what you said too, I could remember being in high school and mm -hmm. just looking at magazines because when I was in high school, like that was the thing, like there was, I don't even really think um, social media was like really a thing because it was the nineties when I was in high school. So mm -hmm. I just remember like me and my friends looking at magazines and, oh my gosh, she's so beautiful. Look at her body. And it's just like, that gets into your head. Like, oh yeah, this is what I have to look like. And mm -hmm. it's not, it is so far from the truth. And it's so nice to see now that they're breaking down those those myths and those lies that we have been fed this whole time, you know, yeah. we, we come in all different shapes and sizes and we are all beautiful. Well, and that's a really good point about the different shapes and sizes, because I mean, like the health industry or that maybe the 
fitness and wellness industry would say abs. The medical industry would say BMI, right? right. They would ju- judge your health on BMI or, you know, whatever status of health your doctor wants to talk about. But BMI is not useful, especially for women, because the BMI was created um, in a huge uh, collaboration with a, a mathematician. It was actually never intended to be used on individuals. And the study group was white Scottish men. And so it was never designed to be used on women at all. They just extrapolated it down. And women are far more likely to have different body shapes, um, you know, across different cultures, Latin America, you know, and African-American, we're sort of obviously more curvaceous. But then we go to Norway or Sweden and we've got tall, skinny, no hips type bodies, you know, and some of them might be deemed overweight when they're just, they've got hips and they've got a pelvis and like you know and so yeah bmi is a terrible way to to determine somebody's health i'm overweight technically like in using bmi and i am definitely not overweight (laughs) right yeah and you know like just to add a little bit to that um i want to like kind of switch it a little bit and talk about restrictions and deprivation and how this is so counter productive. So I just want to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, totally. I mean, we're, we're born into this world where basically from day one, everybody's forcing stuff upon us, right? Our parents are telling us what we cannot do and what we shouldn't do. And then we go to school and it's our teacher. Then we get our first job and it's our boss. And so uh, the way that I kind of look at it is that we always have this um, inner child that was born into the world with no rules, just total curiosity and like just vulnerable exploration of everything, basically. And then like we grow into this adult and we learn to be that adult based on all of the parental figures, like our bosses and our teachers and our parents. And so we've always got these two voices in our, inside of us. We've got our inner child that was born naturally into the world that did whatever it wanted to do because a child is boundless. Um, And then we've got this adult that we're meant to be. And so when it comes to restriction and deprivation in the diet world, and I think everybody listening will be able to relate to this, whether you've been on a diet before or not, is that you, you negotiate with yourself between these two parts of yourself, between the inner child, which says, go on, just have the chocolate. Who cares? We'll start the diet tomorrow. Do whatever you want. And then the adult who comes in and goes, no, don't do that. Like, you know, we're, we're focused. We're, we're on a diet. Like we're doing a thing. And then, you know, the, the, the thing is the inner child almost always eventually wins um, because we want to care for our child and, and nourish our child and hug our child and love our child, right? And so that, that's the situation where we go, stuff it. I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm all in. The diet starts Monday. And so when we have these restriction deprivation diets, we are focusing our inner child on what it can't have. And then, and then our inner child, eventually, it might be by the end of the day of the new diet or by the end of the week of the new diet, that inner child has a tantrum because you're just focusing, it, focusing its attention on everything it's missing out on. And, and so there's part of you that's like, I'm never going to have chocolate again. I love chocolate. I love chocolate. Who doesn't love chocolate? I deserve to have chocolate because I had a hard day at work, you know? And so when we yeah, have this restriction deprivation, we, it almost always fails unless, unless somebody's had a massive emotional event in their life, like 
partner died of cancer and I've just been shocked into turning my life around. Um, but again, even their orientation is not towards what they can't have. They're usually going, I'm grateful for life and I want to keep it, right? So we, we, when we go on these journeys, yeah, any, anything that says there's good and bad foods or yes and no foods, whenever we're in this binary system, we end up in that conversation between our inner child and our parent and the child always wins. Yeah, I, I could... Um... I could 100% relate because I have definitely had, you know, like those conversations, like going back and forth. Oh my gosh, I want it. I don't, I, I shouldn't. Oh, you know, it makes you just feel so bad inside. Mm. And then you're right. The inner child does end up winning. So like what I do now is I just really had to practice on just releasing that mindset and just, you know what, if I want to eat the chocolate dog on it, I am going to eat the chocolate. And, um, you know, if you just have, it's like when somebody puts those restriction restrictions on you and tells you, you can't, you just want it more. So I think this is where finding that balance, you know, like, yeah, okay. Just eat the chocolate, just eat a little bit. Don't sit there and eat, you know, like Mm -hmm. containers and containers of it. But I think if you just satisfy, um, that craving or that certain taste that you have, that you're going to be okay. Yeah, I, th- I think um, as you're talking there, it reminded me of a conversation I had with some a group of clients yesterday. So I think as well, when it comes to chocolate, wine, you know, any of the things that we all love, it's there's also a part of the brain, like our brain likes consistency, it likes facts, because then it means that it knows, knows that we're safe, we're secure, we're okay. We can predictably understand that we're not going to be eaten by a lion or killed by anything. And so... What, what happens with food is that we confuse the brain by saying Monday to Friday, this same food is bad. And then on Saturday and Sunday, this same food is okay. And it's the same with like, you know, cake is bad, but when there's a birthday, cake is good, right? And so we're, but we're back into this binary system. So I think, I mean, it's also important to acknowledge that sugar addiction is a real thing. Um, so when we're dealing with an actual addict, then we need to think about it differently. But for most of us that are emotional eaters or stress eaters or going on this, you know, deprivation restriction mindset that leads towards falling apart is that we shouldn't label any of those foods good, bad or indifferent. They should all just be food. And then we just have an agreement with ourselves about the frequency that we approximately include those foods in our life. Because otherwise we end up in this, is it good today? Is it bad? And then we're back in that negotiation of that cycle of that thinking, right? So um, we want to avoid that kind of tennis match conversation in our head. So when someone um, is in an unhealthy state and they have that awareness and they want to move, they want to move that needle towards being healthy, where would be a good place to start? Great question. So the best place to start is reviewing your past um, because it, there's a, uh, I might get it wrong, but there's an Einstein quote that said, um, if you use the same thinking to figure out the solution as the, as the one that created the problem, you'll never solve the problem. So in order, I think a lot of fad diets, um, they really just focus on, okay, today is day one. How do we move forward? Um, And of course, we want to get there to the point where we're moving forward. But if we don't understand 
why we created the situation that we are currently in, then we'll never know which parts of the system need to be changed. It's like essentially your car breaking down and never looking under the hood to be like, which part needs to be replaced, right? So we need to spend a little bit of time doing our normal life, not changing anything. Um, and actually I've got a program that I, that I run and it's week one right now. So the women that I'm working with right now are doing this. We call it calibration week. And the idea is that we just collect information about our normal life. We don't change a single thing. We figure out, do I feel particular emotions about food? Where am I eating this food? And, and people start to self-manage because this week they're like, oh my God, I just realized for 25 years I've been eating this food when I'm stressed, you know? Or, and so collecting that information allows us to be like, okay, so we've got a stress management issue. That's the thing we need to work on. It's not a calorie deficit issue that we need to manage, you know, which most diets would have you think. It's like, go in, count your calories, eat less than you burn, you know, um, type thing. So, um, yeah, I think the place to start is analyzing, collecting data on your past. And data isn't necessarily calories or, or the amount of food you're eating. It's the emotions, the locations, and the behaviors. Like, do you eat when you're driving? Do you flick through your phone when you're having dinner? You know, these kinds of questions that allow you to understand, is there something going on where I end up unconsciously consuming food? Because a lot of people, when it comes to the foods they want to slow down or reduce, they realize they eat a whole bag of uh, potato chips or a whole thing, block of chocolate, and they do it whilst they're watching the football or watching their kids, you know, do whatever their kids are doing. And they're like, I don't even remember eating that. And so they go back for more because they actually want to be present when, when they eat the food to enjoy it. So there's all these things that we need to uncover that most people have been doing for years, if not decades. And the only way to do that is by reviewing and analyzing the past, collecting that data and figuring out now from day one, what are the things that need attention? I think that I, I like how you um, use the analogy of a car and the calibration because mm -hmm. That's, that's awesome that you are able to take your, your clients and have them connect the past and the present and just like really, really making those powerful connections on, oh, this is why I'm mm -hmm. eating, um, watching football or whatever the situation may be. So I just think mm -hmm. that being able, like you said, to make those connections just really uh, sparks that awareness. And yeah. I am a firm believer of awareness is half the battle right there. Oh, I totally agree. So two, um, just to kind of like continue on with this uh, particular topic, I think it's also important to, what I think of is I think of like that onion where you have an onion and you have to like peel away the layers and really get to the core and really get to like, the why, like, why do I want to be healthy? Why do mm. I want this? And I, I think like once somebody really gets to that, that center of the onion or the center of the, of their core and really, really know that why, then I think those healthy habits will become more sustainable for them. Because I think that so many people, um, will say, oh, I want to be healthy. Well, why do you want to be healthy? Oh, just because I want to lose weight or just because they don't, it's just kind of mm -hmm. like that surface layer. But yeah. I think once they get down into like that deep core, then um, I think 
things last longer and you'll be able to sustain things when you have like that motivation. So I just want to hear what you think about that. I totally agree because I think we're like anyone that's ever done a health degree. So like at university covers the subject, a social determinants of health. Um, And what we know from the research is that your postcode is more important than your genetic code. And that's because we are pack animals. And so we adopt the behaviors and bodies of the people around us. So we feel accepted. Right. And so if we go back to like 1975, it was, kind of a bit strange to have an overweight friend or family member and so you know you would often have grandmothers and mothers with you know being like you need to lose weight you're fat like you know the really direct type type thing because it was so rare and everybody knew that like that's going to lead to unhealthy you know outcomes in life that they're more likely to get sick and so now we're in a world where and, and I've worked with clients that have this issue is that they actually have fear of losing weight and getting healthy because I'll be the only skinny person in my family. And again, it comes back to that social determinants of health. And they're so powerful because it means that, you know, we adopt the behaviors of what our friends are doing on Friday night because we want to feel included. We don't want to feel outcast. We don't want to feel like we're, you know, kicked out of the group or not liked. And, you know, everybody listening probably has had a friend be like, oh, so why are you gluten-free? Or are you not drinking? Why aren't you drinking? Right? They feel judged. Your social circle can feel judged or your family for your decisions. Um, so I think getting to that deeper why is really important. And the second thing is learning to communicate it in a way that frames your wellness journey. Because if you communicate it, I've literally helped people write scripts for how they will answer these questions at brunch, at Friday night drinks, to their husband, because a lot of people don't know how to respond to the question because they haven't done the why exercise and they haven't written an actual couple of sentences that are like, this is me expressing myself. Uh, And so they get to that moment where it's like, why aren't you doing this? They feel judged. They can't really defend themselves. And so they just go, oh, get me a drink, you know? Um, So yeah, we need to dig into the why, but we also need to learn to articulate why we're doing this. And you really want to frame that articulation in regards to your wellness. Like, you know what? The truth is that eating the way I've eaten for years really makes me feel awful about myself. I've got gut issues. I, you know, I feel pain after I eat uh, this type of thing. And, and anybody that responds to you with anything other than, oh, that sucks. Of course you want to get healthy is off the Christmas list. They suck. Oh, They're yeah, unsupportive, sure. right? Right. <laughs> so, so yeah, I agree. We need to get to the why, but we also need to learn to communicate what that means for us. Yeah. And I think um, the process that you just said of writing down with your clients, um, how you help them do that and the script, I just think um, that's just a great tool to have in your tool bag because, mm. yeah, I know how it feels to be in a situation um, and- especially like during family uh, gatherings and why aren't you eating this? I made this, you know? And yeah, sometimes you just like, Oh God. Uh, okay. Yeah. I'll just eat it. Yeah. And then yep. you We've suffer the there. consequences later. Yeah, yeah, totally. Totally. Which is yeah, unfortunately, yeah. Just the nature of packs of humans, <laughs> packs of animals. They always judge the outsider. Um, but fortunately in the Western world, we've, we're in this sort of, we're in this evolution of personal development and awareness. And so people changing and being different and speaking up is becoming normal, but learning to articulate that to your family is very, very important. And interestingly, like you might even be the leader, 
you might become the leader of like a health transformation that happens over a decade or so where everybody starts being like, oh, she's looking really good. Like, and it's one of those things where people like, oh, you want another diet or you're starting another business or you're doing something else. Everyone doubts you in the beginning. And then in a few years, they want to be you. Right. Um, so if you think like that, it might give you some motivation. <laughs> yeah. Example. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, lead by example. Yes. hundred percent. Especially if you're a parent, like a lot of um, women that come through my program are mothers. And one of the things they want to change is the fact that they feel like a fraud uh, because they're like at dinner time, eat your veggies, do this, do this. And then the kids go to bed and then they get the wine and chocolate out. And they're like, Oh, I'm not even d- doing this. So yeah. Leading by example and being in alignment with what you want for yourself and your family is really important. Right. That kind of leads me to my next question. So parents who have children, how can we start to raise healthy children? Oh, such a good question. So, um, I firstly, I need to acknowledge that I'm not a mum. I've never given birth <laughs> um, <laughs> and I don't have kids, um, but everyone, pretty much everyone I've ever worked with has kids. And so I've had these conversations over and over again. And for a lot of the stuff that I do from a nutritional perspective, I default to history, basically what got us the first few thousand years, you know, because industrial industrialized food industry and commercialized food industry is only 50 to hundred years old. You know, it's very new and health, healthy humans were around for a lot, lot longer than just the last few years. So the, um, so a lot of parents often say that, you know, it's, it's very hard to, to manage kids that uh, not they're fussy. I was a fussy kid as well. But the reality is before the last 50 years, parents nailed it. They did it fine. Um, so I would say that um, like all of us, you know, putting food on the plate, it takes 10, 20, sometimes 30 times for kids to um be okay with the texture and the flavor. Um, and it's the same for adults. Like a lot of people eat something and they're like, Oh, I don't like that, but we can all wean our palates onto to eating different foods over time. Um, so patience is really important, but also remember sugar is everywhere. And it is, it's a psychoactive substance that people get addict, clinically addicted to. And so if you're giving a child who doesn't have any maturity, any self-awareness um, sugar, then you're dealing with a little crack addict, basically. And so one of the challenges of parenting is that kids get onto sugar at a very early age and then they use it to manipulate their parents. And, and of course, the, the response will be, Maddie, sugar, well, I can't avoid sugar. And maybe you can't, but maybe you can develop a healthy routine at home as to when sugar is available and when sugar is okay, just as you would for yourself on a diet, which we're talking about. When is sugar okay? What times of the week? At what frequency? At what volume? And if you learn that you or your kids can't regulate sugar at all, because there's two two types, there's moderators and there's abstainers. And so I'm an abstainer. I I can't have it in the house. I just cannot. I cannot regulate my sugar intake. And so I know that about myself. So my idea, my, the rule for myself is that whenever I catch up with friends for brunch or dinner, I just do whatever I want. At home, I'm a healthy person, right? So that's the rule that works for me or the agreement that I have with myself. So it's the same with our kids. We've got to raise them with boundaries, conditions, agreements around food that is not helpful because I know parents, uh, you know, you hear parents talk all the time, like they've had red cordial, they've had soda, you can tell they're going crazy. Um, and I mean, if we talk about longer life, like we're setting them up for really, really poor adult lives uh, because, yeah, if we're feeding them this stuff all of the time, then, you know, it's not really helpful. But again, I'm not a parent and I know that it's it's difficult. There's a lot, 
you know, the modern life is very busy and overwhelming and all consuming. Um, but I would say, yeah, raising healthy kids would be to do the stuff we've just talked about, but showing up as a leader, as a healthy leader in the family and embodying what you want the kids to do. That's the best way because the catch is even if you force your kids from zero to 18 years of age to eat vegetables, if you didn't look after yourself in that time, when they leave home, they will unconsciously look after themselves the way that they learn to, which is the way that you and your partner did. Um, and so if you didn't look after yourself, and this is my argument against selfish uh, parenting, which is like uh, selfless parenting, sorry, which is like, it's the kids, it's everybody else but me. You've just taught your child from the age of 18 years of age, 21 years of age till the day they die to not care about themselves. And that is not a service to your child at all. Right. So self-care is not selfish. Looking after yourself is very important for you, but you also model how your kids should look after themselves as adults. Yeah, for sure. Because I have two kids and what some of the things that I like to do is make it a family thing. Like mm. they, I take them shopping with me. Um, they get to like pick out, you know, like foods that they like, um, and then just bringing that food home and cooking it together. And I mm -hmm. think um, another thing that my kids love is where we live is we have a farm. So you can actually go to the farm and oh, you wow. bring your tools, like your little hand shovel and the little pick and like uh, cutting shears. And you just can just, they have like a little tractor because it's huge and you just jump on the tractor. They have like little sections where it stops off at each section. And then mm -hmm. you just get out and they provide you with um, like reusable bags. Mm -hmm. And we just go, like we pick fruit, we pick lettuce. Mm -hmm. They love it. And it's That's just great. like, I'm, I'm just so glad to be able to do this. Like as a parent, like, Hey, yeah, let's go to the farm. Um, That's amazing. And, I, know, I think now that's that such it's, a good point. Yeah. And now that summer's here, it's just like, oh yeah, we're going to go pick the strawberries, the raspberries, the blueberries. So it's just like such a fun time. And I think too, it's just like you said, going back to what we were talking about earlier, we've got to lead by example, like 100%, especially when it comes to our children. Mm -hmm. um, because it's just like their little tape recorders are recording all yeah. the time. And like you were saying earlier, it's like that subconscious. So, mm. yeah. Um, well, and I think uh, from what you said too, I think making things in a fam a family event is so important because it's not just nourishment of food, it's connection, it's happiness, it's memories that you're creating. And, and my mom did a good job of, even though I didn't always want to do it, but forcing my sister and I to be a part of the cooking because like cooking is a life skill, you know, and it's, and it connects people and preparing the food is like, really important part of digestion actually and we've got all of you know these pre-made foods these days so normalizing food preparation and cooking and teaching your kids how to fend for themselves once they are out of home sure they won't have make the best decisions for the first few years because they're like finally i'm free and i can do whatever i want um but you know they'll eventually come back around to like oh yeah we did this at home <laughs> yeah well you know i have one final question for you and that question is what is one thing somebody can do for their health? Good question. Um, I think one thing, I mean, there's obviously so many things, but I think something that would be all encompassing would be to take ownership. 
Um, I think many of us feel out of control of our health and our food choices. Uh, we feel like, yeah, life's just passing us by at a blistering rate. So I would say start taking ownership just of something really small. Like maybe it's your water intake today. So start practicing being in the driver's seat of your own life. Because if you don't, you end up being a character, a character in somebody else's story, basically. So you want to write your own, you know, the story of your own life. You want to be healthy or do whatever you want to do, but take ownership of that and don't be a victim to whatever other people are inflicting upon you. I like it. I like it a lot. So where can people find you? Yeah, sure. So yeah, the podcast is available on every and all podcast platforms. So how to not get sick and die. So come and hang out there. We've got about 200 odd episodes. Uh, Episode comes out every Wednesday. Um, My website, maddielandsdown.com. And uh, for mothers, I've got a a Facebook group called the Busy Mums Collective. So anyone that wants to get healthy, has challenges with emotional eating or self-sabotage, that type of thing, come and hang out. That sounds great. And I'm going to put all of Maddie's contact information in the show notes. So if you uh, want to learn more about him, or if you resonated with what he said, and you would like to work with him, um, like I said, all the information will be in the show notes. And I just want to say, Maddie, I had such a great time chatting with you. And thank you for the work you were doing. And geez, it I just want to say it's just been the best time. Oh, likewise. Thank you. I appreciate this conversation. And it's good that, uh, yeah, it's good that people are opening up these kind of emotional eating, you know, conventional diet culture kind of conversations because it makes people feel normal about their struggle, you know, and I think that's a really good uh, place to start for people. So thank you for creating this platform. Thank you. Wait, don't go just yet. If you like today's episode, please leave a review. This way, the message of health and wellness can get shared with others. If you ever want to hang out, you can find me on Instagram at Balance Health Now. Until next time, stay well.